All right, this morning's scripture reading um, comes from Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 32. Please follow along in your own Bibles, or as the text is presented on the screens above, I'll be reading from the message version today. So feel free to just listen. That same day, two of them were walking to the village Emmaus, about seven miles out of Jerusalem. They were deep in conversation, going over all these things that had happened. In the middle of their talk and questions, Jesus came up and walked along with them but they were not able to recognize who he was. He asked, What's this you're discussing so intently as you walk along? They just stood there long-faced, like they had lost their best friend. Then one of them, his name was Cleopas, said, Are you the only one in Jerusalem who hasn't heard what's happened during the last few days? He said, What has happened? They said, the things that happened to Jesus Nazarene, he was a man of God, a prophet, dynamic in work and word, blessed by both God and all the people. Then our high priests and leaders betrayed him, got him sentenced to death and crucified him. And we had our hopes up that he was the one, the one about to deliver Israel. And it is now the third day since it happened. But now some of our women have completely confused us. Early this morning, they were at the tomb and couldn't find his body. They came back with the story that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of our friends went off to the tomb to check and found it empty, just as the woman said, but they didn't see Jesus. Then he said to them, so thick-headed, so slow-hearted, why can't you simply believe all that the prophet said? Don't you see that these things had to happen, that the Messiah had to suffer and only then enter into his glory? Then he started at the beginning with the book of Moses and went through all the prophets, pointing out everything in the scriptures that referred to him. They came to the edge of the village where they were headed. He acted as if he were going on, but they pressed him. Stay and have supper with us. It's nearly evening. The day is done. So he went in with him. And here's what happened. He sat down at the table with them, taking the bread he blessed and broke and gave it to them. At that moment, open-eyed, wide-eyed, they recognized him. And then he disappeared. Back and forth they talked. Didn't we feel on fire as he conversed with us on the road, as he opened up the scriptures for us? The word of the Lord. All right. So this morning, uh, you get to see a lot of me, and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. My wife would say, depends on the days, depends if I've eaten or not. <clears throat> um, so uh, my name is J.D., I'm one of the pastors here. Mark and Sharon are in Israel, All right, they're enjoying the Holy Land, and I am very jealously, covetously here with you. Um, <laughs> No, it's good. I'm happy to be here. Uh, but um, there are Sundays in which I, I lead and then I get to preach. I get to do both. And I don't love doing it. Some of you are thinking, that's a lot. And it is a lot. It is a lot. Uh, and so this morning, we're going to engage in teaching in a different kind of a way. Um, I already said to you that it's going to be a bit intimate. And we're going to kind of enter into the process together. So I'm going to start by doing this very, like, school thing. Take one of these. And pass it around. I don't know if I have enough for everyone because in first service, people like really took it. So what I would say is if you, if you really need one, 
take it. But if you're like, I don't need something to write something on, don't take it. Uh, what we're going to be doing is writing questions on these cards. Now, you could write it on your own journal. You could write it in your own mind, whatever is easy. Uh, but the, the topic of this morning's talk is questions on the journey. There's this very interesting story that we just witnessed um, where there's questions on the journey. And so what we're going to do is that I'm going to teach for about 10 minutes, very, very quick, two observations from this text. And then we're going to have a question and answer forum. We're going to go back to like Jesus' time. Back in the synagogue where there was a rabbi who would teach in front of a group of people. And then the group of people would challenge that rabbi with questions and thoughts. Uh, And they would say, um, I disagree with that. Or what do you think about this? Uh, In that time, teaching was dialogical. So, if you would so humor me, while I'm teaching on this blank card, you could write either a question related to the things I'm saying, or uh, more interestingly, I think, you can write a question, any question you want, that's related to God, okay? Like, don't write, what did you have for lunch yesterday? That's not interesting. Like, what did I eat? I don't think that's interesting for you to know. Uh, I don't even remember what I ate, so I wouldn't be able to answer it. Um, But anyways... Any question. There is no question that is off limits. And this is a safe place. I really, really mean that. And I think you're going to, once I set up the framework for how this conversation is going to happen, I think you'll understand that we have a God who doesn't just invite questions and invites doubt, but he honors it. And so we're going to honor that. We're going to honor that here. Uh, I'm not the final authority and I'm not Jesus, okay? Part of me sharing with you or attempting to answer your questions is part of me wrestling with the places that I'm at in my own theology and in my own theological development. One thing that I'm learning is that um, the more I see God and the more clearer my picture of God becomes, the less answers I have that fit that picture. And so we're going to see something together. But, okay, is everyone okay? You understand where we're going kind of? No, I'd like this if you do. North-South. Okay, awesome. All right. There are two observations that I would like to point out in this passage, right, related to questions on the journey. And the first one is this, that Jesus meets us in the middle of our doubt. Jesus meets us in the middle of our doubt. Now, these two disciples, they've lost everything. Imagine giving up your families, giving up your job, giving up your retired life, giving up going to school, Going out, I don't know, somewhere past Snoqualmie and listening to this guy who says he's the son of God. You spend months of your life with this person. Years pass by. You've forsaken all of that, okay? And then he dies. He dies. Now that is the place where we find these disciples. Right? Jesus has been crucified You know, the tomb is empty. They are walking back home to Emmaus, which we can safely assume is their home. And it's about a seven-mile journey, as the text said. And as they walk in this middle of their doubt, I mean, imagine the things that they're saying. What am I going to say to my parents? What am I going to say to my kids? Can I ask for my job back? I mean, what am I going to say? Sorry, I lost my sanity for a few years, but I'd love to work for you again. What am I going to say? All this hope that we put into this guy, Jesus. And besides those practical questions, 
I suppose it's very easy to assume that they had questions about Jesus. Right? The one that they followed, the one that they saw do miraculous things, died. And yet it's in this place that Jesus comes to them. Right in the middle of their doubt. He doesn't expect them to figure it out. He doesn't even expect them to, um, to, to get over it somehow on their own. Jesus comes to them right as they are in the middle of their doubt. Now, how did we, as followers of Jesus, become so obsessed with answers that doubt has somehow become a negative thing? That somehow questioning our faith or questioning God's existence or the reality of these things is somehow not okay. In 2009, there was a book that came out called Mother Teresa, Come Be My Light. I don't know if you've heard of this book, but it sparked a great controversy. This book chronicled letters that were written between Mother Teresa and her spiritual directors and mentors where she confessed to having major struggles with her faith. They started in her time when she was in Calcutta and continued for 66 years, except for a five-week period. They continued. And the things that she said was, I know that I preach Jesus and love Jesus, but I can't hear him. I can't see him. I know that I say that God is love, but I don't even know if I feel that love. These are really intimate confessions. I know that um, God is real, but I really question whether he really exists. Now, here's something very profound, right? Here's this woman who dedicated her whole life and is seen as a saint, very Christ-like, yet people freaked out when this book came out. And they questioned, how could she have doubt? She's a hypocrite. Oh, my goodness. That's not okay. She's Mother Teresa. If Mother Teresa doesn't believe in God, then how can we believe in God? She's Mother Teresa. They freaked out. And then there was a group of people who said, listen, doubt has always been a part of the saint's journey. All throughout our historical records, you see the saints of the church St. John of the Cross chronicled this the best, where he said that there is a dark night of the soul. When you've been in faith long enough, there comes a season in your journey where the answers you had here do not work for your relationship with God here. A, a tragedy happened, injustice in the world, great personal pain or loss, and these answers don't work anymore. Doubt is a natural part of that process. Now, people were split over this, and we can be split over this, but this is what we see about Jesus, especially in this story. He walks to them right in the middle of their doubt. He doesn't just accept it, he honors it. He spends time walking, listening, answering for seven miles. And then, I love this, he pretends like he was going to go on. Can you imagine Jesus? I'm going to pretend like I'm going to keep walking. And then the guys are like, no, 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 come, have dinner with us, please. He goes to eat with them. And there is a gracious spirit where Jesus just doesn't allow doubt. He honors doubt. He honors the questions. Anne Lamott, one of my favorite authors, says this quote, the opposite of faith is not doubt, but certainty. Certainty is missing the point entirely. Faith includes noticing the mess, the emptiness and discomfort, and letting it be there until some light returns. 
So Jesus meets us in the middle of our doubt. That is observation one. Observation number two. Embracing Jesus is embracing mystery. Now there's a certain beauty to this story. I think there's a hidden lesson of spirituality here. And if we go too fast, we completely miss it. The disciples have no idea who this person is. Right? They're walking on the road. He just kind of walks up and says, Hey, you guys look like you're bummed. What's going on? They're like, dude, do you not realize what happened in Jerusalem? And he's like, nah, what happened? Totally like, right? And they start talking about the loss of their friend. And what we see about Jesus is that he embraces them, but they also embrace him, this complete stranger, all the way until the dinner table. There is something mysterious at work here where even though they know Jesus and have followed him, they don't recognize who he is, yet they invite that dialogue. They invite that tension. And this person starts teaching them, right, about the prophets and and all this stuff. And he's basically challenging their questions and answering their questions and honoring them. Jesus is boundless mystery. When you embrace him, you have to embrace the mystery. The longer you go into faith, the deeper you go, the more you'll realize how much mystery there truly is in all of this, right? We say the Trinity is three in one. One plus one equals three. No, not really. When it comes to God, one plus one equals one. Yet the word Trinity is not found in the scripture, not once. But we say it's orthodoxy and we hold on to it. So what about that? We say that somehow God became human. That would be, that would be like me becoming an ant, Right? Can you imagine if there was like a, uh, let's say I turn on the sprinkler and I wanted to warn the ants about an impending flood from my sprinkler. I somehow become an ant and now I'm talking antish, which I'm not even going to try. It's like that, but a million times, billion times, trillion, whatever numbers those are, greater. The fact that God became a human being. Great mystery in that. And the fact that this person resurrected from the dead, great mystery in that. Uh, there was a pastor who came to uh, my college, and he spoke in chapel, and he told this story. He and his friends loved playing with frogs. There was a creek kind of close to their home. And so they would go out to this creek and watch frogs play, watch frogs jump, watch frogs swim, and do all of that, and touch them, and feel the sliminess. And there was a, a kind of a magical quality that they were drawn to. And one day, as they were watching this frog do all of this stuff, right, they said, oh, we want to figure out, you know, how, did the, how does a frog do this? What makes a frog tick? This could be a little graphic, you know, if you have kids. It's ninth grade biology, so, you know. But what they decided to do was to open this frog up to, to see what motivated such magical qualities. And so when they did so, which they did, what happened? The frog died. All the life disappeared. All of the things that entranced them vanished. I think it's a helpful metaphor when we talk about our Christian faith that sometimes we kill our frogs by trying to understand and dissect God too much. Sometimes we push in so deeply that we have to have this answer. We have to know for sure. And sometimes the things that draws us to God become pat and small. And then we don't have a God that we worship anymore. He's just someone that 
we like and we engage with every now and then. We're not drawn to this mountain of fire that the Israelites were drawn to. We're not drawn to this Savior who heals blind eyes and and helps the lame to walk. There's a quality that we lose in our affection for him. Embracing Jesus is embracing mystery. God is not afraid of the doubt of these disciples. He's not afraid of their questions. He meets them. Jesus meets them right where they are at. And he leads them further into himself. He honors their questions, honors their doubt. And then he reveals himself to him. This morning, uh, we're going to do this practically together. I said that we're going to do this real talk Q&A. And so what we're going to do is... um, I'm going to try to answer the questions you ask. And they can be whatever. Anything about God, anything about faith. Uh, we did this in first service. Things went okay. Um, I didn't lose my job. I didn't get fired. Um, I wasn't crucified. Uh, Mark and Sharon know about this. This isn't a shock. Okay? This isn't something we just made up. Um, but we're going to engage in a bit of this. And I want us to hold these questions as a community, just like Jesus would. There's no judgment here. There's no stupid or silly question. All right, I don't think God sees us that way. I don't think we should see each other that way. The other thing I'll say is that I don't have all the answers. I've already said that. I'm going to share um, my best interpretation of the things that have made sense to me. I will say that there's going to be um, a tension and a grayness, I think, that evolves in our time together. When I went into seminary, Theology was very black and white. And man, I had a faith crisis right in the middle because my image of God was too small for who God really was. And so there is God embracing us where we are and there's us embracing God where he is. There's a bit of mystery and tension there. So, um, are there any questions, comments, concerns? Well, there are questions, but no no one's freaking out about what we're about to do, right? Maybe except for me, because I have to answer your questions. Uh, but let's start. Does anyone have a question they would like to throw into this conversation? I see Ivan in the back. Let's go there. Oh, you should say your name just in case if people don't know you. Good morning, uh, Ivan. And my question is, I had the privilege of sitting through first service, so I've been thinking harder. But uh, my question is based in where I am in my journey, and that is, how do I love God who I can't see and who doesn't demand my time more than my life, which has demands on every moment that I have, including my family and my job and all the other parts? It's a great question. All right. How do we love God who we cannot see more than what we see. So here's an interesting, uh, I'm going to, oh, I didn't mention this. We're going to be very rabbinic, meaning I might answer your question with a question. It's very rabbinic. Uh, and, and, oh, the other thing, I don't expect you to agree with me, and I'm not trying to convince you. We're just sharing ideas. Ivan, I think there's an interesting question here. And I think the question that I see is, um, why do we have to love God more than the things we see? That's the question. Why, why, does, why does my love for Sarah or my daughter Elise have to be in contention with love for God? 
I'm going to say that I don't think it has to be. Okay? Now, C.S. Lewis might disagree with me. His writings on first loves, he says that they're ordered, right? That God is a first love and that we have second loves. And that if we uh, love the things in the proper order, that there is a way in which we're meant to function, is what he says. I disagree with him. Sorry, Clive. I think, I think of my life as stewardship. I think of the relationships and the people that God has given me to be unique. No one else is Sarah's husband. No one else is Elisa's dad. In that, I feel that I am called by God, created by him, to love them as he would want me to. And so for me, in loving my wife, in loving my daughter, I am loving God. The more I love my wife, the more I love my daughter, the more I'm able to love God. Ironically, the more that I love God and realize his love for me, the more that I'm able to love them. So there is this like circular relationship in that. And for me, I've never had to put them on two separate lines of the spectrum. I've always seen them as connected. Uh, so yeah, that's my take on that one. I think that when we love those that God has put into our life, that in a sense we are loving God. I think it's consistent with what John says about God being love and that if we have not seen God, we cannot love so it's all a beautiful thing. Thank you. All right. Another question. Yes. Do you want me to read it? Or are you say oh, it? I've got it here. Uh, Henry. Shh. Henry. Shh. Uh, maybe. Maybe. Um, so when you're in that season of doubt, like Mother Teresa talked about, oh, I know it's a microphone. It's so exciting. Um, what steps should one take to move out of that season of doubt or is it okay just to sit in it for a while? Henry, Henry. Oh, so cute. Um, that's a wonderful question. When you're in a season of doubt, are there any steps that you can take? So this is what's so interesting. Is that um, the Bible is filled with moments where people just stay where they are. They're stuck. Right? The first one is the Israelites. They're enslaved. And they cry out for like hundreds of years. Oh my gosh, a long time, right? Um, and then God tells Moses, I've heard my people. I always ask myself, did it take you that long to hear your people? Really? Uh, but then the other one that we see, this great silence, is in between Malachi and Matthew. 400 years of silence. No prophets for 400 years. Right? I mean, we're not even talking about generations. We're talking about four, eight generations, if you say a generation's 50. 400 years where God did not speak, and then Jesus shows up. And so I think that the biblical record shows us that um, in moments of great doubt and struggle, there's a, uh, a challenge and an invitation to faithfulness. And the reason why is because God actually is not concerned with the arrival or the completion of things. I think he's way more concerned with the process. Mother Teresa is a great example. No one can say that Mother Teresa was not Christ-like. She gave up her whole life. That, that somehow in the struggle and in the doubt, there was a faith being purified and formed in her that I honestly think she would not have gotten uh, if she didn't have that period of time. St. John of the Cross, we referenced him already, um, 14th century guy, said that God sometimes intentionally hides himself away. Right? So that we would pursue him. It's kind of like, um, okay, my daughter and I, I can be like, I'm here, right? I'm here with Elise. But if I go over here, Elise does not see me. But now there is a pursuit that she has to engage in. And I think God does that to not make us complacent. 
because our intentional um, normal way of functioning is to be comfortable. And so I think God constantly reshapes our definitions. So I would say it's okay to stay in your season of doubt. But but here's the thing. You could either, your heart can fester, and you can question God more and doubt God more, or there is a um, an invitation to be faithful to saying, God, I don't feel you, I don't know you, but I know you're real. And that's that's faith, right? That's not certainty. That's faith. And it's that pursuit. I think when we talk about the fire that purifies, I think there's something in that season that brings real life. The winter of that season, I think, brings spring. If you don't allow it to fester and go to doubt and day. Yeah, that's my take on that one. Another question. Okay, I saw you, Eddie, really fast. How did they not recognize Jesus? What a great question. Um, love that. How do they not recognize Jesus? Yeah, so here's what's funny, okay? We do know that uh, when Jesus, this was post-resurrection, there were several different moments in which this happened. Jesus, uh, some of his disciples recognize him right away, right? There's scenes where he like comes into the room, and then they're like, oh, it's you, and then he disappears, I think he's very comical, right? Why would you do that? Why would you appear for a second and then disappear? But Jesus does that. Uh, And then there's moments like when he's in the garden and Mary comes to him and she thinks that he's a gardener. So there's something about his resurrected body that's different. And in that account, he says to her, like, she's like, oh, mistaking him for the gardener. You know, do you know what Jesus, and he says, he kind of reveals himself, Mary, it's me. And then he says, don't touch me, right? So there was something that happened when he was glorified with his body, um, Maybe he looked different. In first service, that question was asked, actually. And, they, and someone said, well, maybe he didn't have a beard, you know? Maybe his face was clean. Maybe, you know? Uh, I think that, like, the, the images of glorification we see in Scripture, whether it's Moses coming off a mountain because he's seen God and he has to veil his face, or in the transfiguration or other moments, there's some kind of physical alteration. And so I'd like to say that it was partly that. I think the second reason is, I think Jesus may have maybe hidden that from them intentionally. Um, to walk with them. So 2,000 years later, we can sit here and say Jesus actually meets people in their doubt, and he does that. There's a kind of kindness and a grace to it. He's not forceful, right? He's not like, ha, look at me, it's Jesus. How dare you doubt me? He's like, hey, what's going on? So that is a bit of a mystery. I don't know if that satisfies it, but I think that's it. Thanks for the question. All right, someone else, anyone? Okay, I'm coming. And I see that one over there, so I'm going to go that way. Yes. Could you expand further on um, what Mother Teresa did when she was in those moments of doubts? Because I I didn't read that book, and that's the first time I ever heard of that. So that would be great to hear. Um, This one's tricky because the book was a collection of letters. And um, I've read – I've not read all of it. I've read some of it. Um, So it's very personal. Um, You know – I mean, I I think we have the testament of her life to talk about what she did. I mean, even without feeling God and knowing God and maybe sensing that same intimacy, she still still showed up every morning, every day, and gave her life away, literally. I'm going to say this. You can't. What she did, the life she lived, I don't think is humanly possible. I do not think it's humanly possible. 
I think that you have to be, and I think that's the reason why some people, you know, revere her maybe too much. But there's a, there's a, there's, we're drawn to this image of the selflessness and the sacrifice. That is not, that is not at all a part of our, our human DNA as fallen, broken, curved people. And so I absolutely believe that even though she was experiencing great doubt, that there was a sense of God was somehow at work within it, um, within the wrestling, within the tension. Uh, the way that I like to think of my spiritual walk sometime, and this is kind of connected to Tiffany's question, is it's kind of like climbing a mountain, okay? Have you guys noticed that people are obsessed with um, being on the summit? That's like all the Instagram pictures, right? Like you're looking at the summit and the beautiful view. Okay, for those of you who've climbed, what takes longer, the climb up and down or staying at the summit? Which one? The climb. Exactly. Isn't that funny how we glorify these moments of like space and elation and release? But to get to that point, there's significant energy you have to invest. I think spirituality is the exact same way. We quit way too early sometimes when we say, I'm praying and I don't feel like God hears me or I don't feel like I'm connected. I'm reading the scriptures, but I fall asleep and it's bored, right? We just quit too early. We haven't reached the summit yet. And so I think what I see in her life um, and the historical record of who she was was she kept climbing. She kept climbing. And here's the irony. Now she's, <laughs> she's with Jesus, right? She's at the most glorious summit of all. So um, there is something to be said about faithfulness. I will say, St. John of the Cross said this, that these dark nights of the soul happen for indefinite periods of times, and they also happen uh, multiple times throughout someone's life. Some people will have no dark night, or it'll be like a week. Other people will be in for 10 years. I had a dark night of the soul that was about 10 years. Yeah, really, really dark. But here I am, believing in Jesus and trying to answer questions about him. How funny. So yeah, hope that helps, Valerie. All right, um, yes. Joe. Okay, um, my question is a little complicated. It comes with a story. Um, I know that I have gifts that I was given, and I feel called to give those gifts away, either wealth or time or money or whatever it might be, but I still feel that inward pull and I know that I am called to give it away why is it hard to do what I know Jesus wants me to do why is it hard? yes why is it hard? Hmm. okay why is it hard to do what Jesus wants me to do essentially it's a question of sacrifice right surrender maybe it's like because what I hear you saying is um uh I have, I have these gifts and these things, and I know I want to give them away, but it's hard for me to give them away. Okay, can I ask you a question? Um, is that related to fear, or is that related to, like, uh, questions of validity, you know? Like, meaning, like, like, do you feel like, oh, I'm afraid to give these away because I don't know what they'll become? Or is it more like, does Jesus really want me to sacrifice this? You know what I mean? Validity. Okay. This is an interesting question. Um, this is what I will say. When I was a kid, 
I grew up in a church where they, they, the image of God that I was given was you have to sacrifice everything, your most important thing to God. You basically can't do it, whatever that thing is. Uh, and the text that they used was Abraham, right, sacrificing his son. So if you aren't able to love God that much, and if you aren't willing to do that, then your heart's not in the right place. And so I, man, it was bad. I was part of this ministry and long story short, but I ended up sacrificing so much of these meaningful high school experiences that I had. I didn't go to homecoming. I didn't go to prom. Um, I didn't walk on graduation day. Uh, and, and I was very, very involved. I gave up being, um, you know, the drumline captain in my senior year because I thought it was all sacrificing for God. Um, and so I will say this. I think that image of God is horribly wrong. <laughs> I think it's so twisted that it like sickens my heart. And the reason why is because um, I, I don't, I don't, the surrender that you witness in Jesus's heart, right? How do we surrender ourselves? Jesus struggled with surrender himself. Let's not forget that. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he really struggled. He struggled, like sweat, you know, historical record and, and says, you know, that looked like blood, right? He struggled greatly to surrender. Um, and so the, the, the idea of surrender is never meant to be easy, but I do think what makes it easier for us is that we're promised resurrection in the midst of that, right? And we're promised that we can do it through Christ who gives us the strength to do it. Um, I have this tattoo on my arm. You're going to make me talk about my tattoo. So, uh, I talked about this when I was ordained, but these are two music signs. There's a crescendo and a decrescendo. A decrescendo means to become softer, and a crescendo means to become louder. And so this is John 3.30, which means um, I must decrease and he must increase, okay? But the reason why they're on top of each other is because I believe that the more I decrease at the same time, Christ increase in me. So the, so the paradox about spiritual surrender is that there is no loss, really. That's how this works, is that somehow when we die to our false selves or the false images of our life or the false dreams, we are given new life, new images, and new dreams at the same time. What I will say, though, is that it can get kind of complicated because sometimes the church tends to make, like, Christian everything the thing that's good, right? The divide between sacred and secular is somehow uh, very, very strong. I think Jesus liked really good food. I think Jesus liked really good music. I don't think he listened to worship music all the time. I mean, I don't, right? I think there's a sense in which... um, the surrender that Jesus leads us to and God leads us to, I guess what I'm saying, is that we find our true selves, our true life. Um, it's not meant to be easy. And, and here's the thing. It's like, if I let this go, how will I know that something comes in return? And I think that's something that, that any of us can only gain through experience. And whether you've been a Christian for two years or 20 years, surrender is always, always difficult. Uh, but it's the hope of resurrection and it's the hope of true identity, true life, and true things that we can hold on to. I, I truly believe it. I mean, so much so that I put it on my arm, right? There's equal exchange. I would say greater exchange because the vision that God gives for my life, for your life, is greater than what I or you could probably imagine. I hope that's helpful. Yeah. All right. Any question? Okay. Um, I want to read one scripture, um, Matthew 10, that kind of, gives an introduction to my question. Jesus called his 12 disciples together and gave them authority to cast out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sicknesses. 
And we know that the apostles went out and uh, healed a whole bunch of people um, who had faith and who probably didn't. But mainly it was uh, healing people and bringing uh, joy to the earth. However, uh, and we know that uh, even Apostle Paul, one of the newcomers, got this power as well, right? However, in his letter to Timothy, Paul states, Erastus uh, stayed at Corinth, and I left Trophimus sick at Miletus. His uh, seven-year uh, companion, he left sick. Why? Love this question. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> All right, you're good. All right, so, uh, whew, so good. All right, so here's something that's very interesting about Paul, about Jesus. I think, th- I think this really speaks to the heart of miracles in general. And I think connected to this is a question, like, why do we not see that? Right, we have sick people here. Why can't we just lay our hands on them? They be healed like this. They can be. We believe that. And I know it to be true. I've seen it. And in parts of the world... There are real demons being exercised in places just like this. So I'm going to start by saying that I don't think that the gifts of the Spirit are dead or separate. I think that they are very active. And for those who've been on any mission fields or missionary contacts where the gospel is coming in for the very first time, it's, whew, the stories you hear there on the front lines are unreal. Why don't we see them here? Oh, man, lack of faith. I don't know. We can go to a lot of stuff, but I'm not going to beat us up. I'm not going to beat myself up either. Um, But I will say this. Paul leaves his friend sick. I don't know. Maybe he couldn't heal him. Maybe it didn't happen. I mean, how many times do we pray for faith and it works and it doesn't work? Um, I had a friend um, who prayed, who, knew, who, who really believed that God was going to heal his friend's cancer and the friend died. He was spiraled into this depression and crisis of faith and he's now on the verge of coming back out of that, right? God's ways are purely mysterious. Um, Here's another deeper question, though. Jesus didn't heal everyone. Right? We know that crowds of people came to him, but he didn't heal everyone. There's one really particular story that's interesting. He goes to, um, you know, the pools of, uh, is it Siloam, right, where the waters get stirred? Yeah? And there's, so the story behind that was that there was this water and there were a bunch of sick people there. And, and there was a story that when the waters got stirred, you saw it stirring and it made an angel that came and touched the water. So the waters were divine. And all the sick people tried to jump in. And the first one who got in the water got, got healed. Jesus doesn't heal everyone there. He, really, he doesn't do that. He only heals that one person that he talks to, as far as we know. Um, now, I, I don't know. Maybe Jesus didn't eat and he didn't have healing power. I'm, I'm just a joke. Don't take me seriously on that. But I think that there's a, um, a deeper question here, especially even related to um, the, the power that we see the disciples have was not something, it was, it was exercised in faith and ultimately it was God who brought healing. Right, And we see that consistent throughout Acts because there's this group of people who try to like cast out demons and do the same things. And the demon is like, I know Paul, but who in the world are you? Right. Uh, and so ultimately healing comes from God. We can exercise the faith and we can exercise the willingness to boldly proclaim. But in embracing faith, we are saying that, the, I mean, certainty again is not, it's not faith. To say I know for sure God is going to do this is not faith. That's not faith. Um, to say, I will believe in God regardless of outcome. 
Lord, this is really the longing of my heart. I think that Jesus heals people. The centurion comes to Jesus and says, you know, I want you to heal. I really want you to heal. He honors that, right? That request. But then he chooses not to heal others. Um, You know, I could give you a pat answer, say that one day in heaven or whatever, as we encounter death, we're all healed. But I don't, I don't think that for some people, healing is a part of their journey. And for some people, it's not. Um, I don't think it, it was a power that they could just exercise at will. I think healing came as they exercised faith and God brought it. Yeah. There's a tension there. I hope that's okay. All right, cool. All right, anyone else? Let's take, I don't know, two more. We'll go here and then back there with Bill. So when you're in the midst of that doubt, how can you know that it's not a problem with your hearing? Or how can you, how can you just sit with the doubt and stop questioning, am I not hearing, am I not hearing, God's trying to get through to me, but I'm not hearing. But just think this is where he wants me to be right now. Great question. Okay. Uh, You guys really love this doubt thing, huh? (laughs) First service, it's so interesting to me how first service and second service have a totally different feel, you know? Um, All right. I'll I'll, I'll personalize this. So when I, when I struggle in, in my, in my situations of doubt, I will say that as I've gone through it, I have always thought that it was God's fault. I've always thought God's not speaking, God's not loving, God's not kind. Now, once that dark night passes and I come into light and I come into a deeper revelation of who God is, I realize that there were, that it was more my fault than his fault. I don't think, however, I can get to that second place without going through all of the first place. Does that make sense? I don't think I can get to a place where I say that, that, oh, how silly of me that I thought God was this way, that his tone of voice was this way, or that he, he caused this thing to happen. How silly of me. I can't get there unless if I go through the, you ruined my life. This is all your fault. You are not loving. You are not true. Uh, what I love about the nature of God is that he's large enough for my questions. He's large enough for my anger. He is large enough for my doubt. Um, I, the way I read Job has radically changed. So I used to read Job and be like, dude, Job is such a pansy, right? Like, why? What's wrong with this guy? Why can't he just trust Jesus? Sunday school, Jesus. Everyone knows the Sunday school answer. What's wrong with you? Yahweh, God, you know, whatever. Um, but what's so funny about Job is that I think that Job has to navigate through that. He has to release those emotions. He has to release the tensions that he feels. And it's, it's the crawling through that mess, even within himself, that he comes alive to this deeper revelation of God. I used to read, by the way, God's answer to Job as being very angry and vindictive. Were you there when I created this? Were you there, right? But now I want you to try this. When you read through Job, Imagine, uh, I don't know, a loving parent, you know, um, speaking to a child. A child whose way of understanding, way of sight is so different, so wrong. I experienced this with my daughter, Elise. She's a year and a half. Okay? I'm like, Elise, I will not give you this prune thing 
or this pouch or whatever. She doesn't understand, right? She freaks out. She yells, she screams, you know, she does whatever. That doesn't affect me personally in any way. I'm okay with that. And I think that when God holds certain things, because I think he does, even the revelation of himself, he's okay. He understands that there is a space in which he wants us to get past those things. And so the worst thing to do is to not do that. Right? The worst thing you can do in your season of doubt is to not question. It's to not express emotion. It's to not come to God and say, where were you? How could you? If you read the Psalms, I think they're very, very helpful for this. Um, the Psalms were like Jesus' prayer book. That's how the Jewish people saw them. And David, over and over again, right? How were you, God? Like, you know, I feel like there are people trying to kill me. They literally were. Um, but then if you notice, at the end of each Psalm, he goes back to God's character. It's almost as if he has to remind himself, that even though I am literally running for my life in this cave and I do not feel like you are the one who said that I would be king and your plans for my life have utterly failed because I'm not king, you're still good. And so I think, I think that um, we do ourselves a great disservice when we say God can't handle that anger. God can't handle that, that doubt. He can't handle that energy. No, he can. He died for that. He died for that. And Jesus, right? When we read that we have a high priest who's sympathetic, Jesus, Jesus lived on this earth for 30 years. He lost loved ones, I'm sure. He had conflicts with people, and he saw great injustice um, himself and what he went through being one of them. And so really, I think that, I think Jesus changes it all, because I think before Jesus, little theological thing, I don't think God really understood humanity. I don't think he understood what it felt like to be human. I think that's why it's easy to be like, I'm going to start all over. Flood. Let's start with Noah's family. But I think with Jesus, something happened where I think the heart of God radically changes because he says, oh, that's what it feels like to lose someone. That's what it feels like to, to watch a family hope for a child and they miscarry. You have to imagine that Jesus heard stories, right? For 30 years. as a carpenter's son in his town. And so I think there is an um, invitation to God to help us not, not, you have to get through the, God, this is all you, in order to get to the place where we say, oh, how foolish. Um, but in those moments, God says, yeah, it's all good. You know, there's like great love and grace there. Okay. There, what was the other question? It was Bill. <clears throat> You kind of answered my question, but um, it kind of led to another one. Um, in our walk of faith, um, for me anyway, it seemed like uh, the fire was immense at the very beginning, almost like a honeymoon stage. And now, after five years of walking with Christ, I've noticed um, the fire just wasn't isn't as strong as it used to be when I when I first started. Um, and which scares me because it makes me think that I'm not doing the things that I'm supposed to be doing for Christ. But then I realize that I can't do anything to earn that. Um, how do you keep that fire without running yourself so ragged that you're no use to anybody? What a great question, right? 
<sighs> okay. I've been married for uh, 10 years. This will be going on 11 years. And uh, I think marriage is helpful. And for those of you who've been married longer than I've been alive, you're awesome. Bow down. Um, intimacy changes over time. It evolves. So when I first started dating Sarah, uh, I was so big into like the big stuff. We had to go see a show or, you know, go to a concert or eat some really fancy dinner. And it was like, you know, this is my love for you, right? Um, I could tell you my proposal story. It's really long and drawn out, but I did crazy things, crazy things. Um, the the room, in, I'll tell you about the room. The room in which I proposed to her had 111 roses and candles. And uh, each one represented like one love and one story and one future. And this is my heart for you. This, and, it, and it was the last stage of like a scavenger hunt all over the city of Austin. I had my friends like keep guard at the post where I hid my gifts. Now, I just love eating pizza and watching Netflix. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? If it's like, hey, I let me get at, let like, oh, let's like live it up, right? Oh, I'm like, you want to watch another episode of Father Brown? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I think intimacy changes, and I think. Uh, there's no reason, and especially because Jesus understands humanity, which we've established, there's no reason why we would expect our relationship to, with God to be any different. I think intimacy with God changes. I think in the beginning, there is this sense in which you are radically on fire. There's this great transformative experience, a honeymoon phase. But as you mature in faith, I think that evolves. And, and, I, and I've found, at least in my journey, that I've come to appreciate God for things... Um, now, way more than I did before. Before, it was like he had to answer some radical prayer for me to know that he was present or for me to know that I was loved. And now, I could hear the birds singing in the morning. And I get a profound sense of God's presence with me. And so I would say that, that the, the loss is a part of the evolution of intimacy. And I think that what you have to do is you have to find new ways to appreciate him. And, and just like, you know, with your spouse, for those who've been married, you know, it's a discovery in that relationship. Hey, how do we relate to each other now? You know, now that we have this, God, how do I relate to you now that this has happened? God, how do I relate to you now that I don't think this way anymore? How do I relate to you now, God, that I think it was silly that I read the Bible five times in a year, right? And if we don't let intimacy evolve, what happens is you work into it, you get into like a work-based faith. You just drive yourself. And I don't think that's what God wants. I think sometimes the, the thing that he wants most is for us to do nothing, right? Uh, which is the paradox of all that we're talking about. Okay. Bill, I hope that's helpful. All right. All right. Will you stand um, with me, everyone? We're going to close our time um, just by singing a really simple chorus. It's not long. Uh, I hope that this exercise has been helpful. Um, and I hope you've gotten a sense of the fact that God honors our questions 